be really informed, you need to know what's behind the national news stories and what's going on in your neighborhood. Consider This, a new podcast from NPR and WNYC, helps you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Miracle Polish by Stephen Milhauser, which was published in The New Yorker in November of 2011. If the polish had made me look younger, if it had made me handsome, if it had smoothed my skin and fixed my teeth and changed the shape of my nose, I'd have known it was some horrible mechanical trick. The story was chosen by Stuart Dybeck, a poet and fiction writer whose story collections include Paper Lantern, Love Stories, and Ecstatic Cahoots, 50 Short Stories. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Deborah. So what is it that most draws you to Stephen Milhauser's work? Well, I'm attracted to the kind of fabulous world that he creates. I, I, I have a special fondness for writers working that dimension of fiction, but... The other thing that I really love about his work is just the sheer beauty of his writing. He's got all all the tools. You mentioned to me that you had been teaching this story, um, Miracle Polish, in a, in a class on writing fabulism. Correct. When I saw it in The New Yorker, I gobbled it up and put it in my, <laughs> in my course pack. <laughs> and it's, it's stayed there. I mean, I, I, I rotate the stories, but that one has, has remained. How do, how do you define fabulism? Not the way I would if this was a scholarly discussion, <laughs> but but uh, for the class, I describe it as anything that's not realism. <laughs> mm-hmm. Really, I cheat a little bit. You know, they they come in thinking they can uh, write science fiction, and, and uh, some of them do. But the course pack itself leans heavily towards writers like uh, Milhauser, uh, Borges, Karen Russell. Sarah Bynum, Kelly Link. And so they kind of pick up a message, I suppose, from it. Mm-hmm. And those are all writers who, who take quite realistic details of daily life and do something new with them in a way. Right, exactly. Yeah, I guess there's a little bit of magical realism in everybody since Marquez, where you've got that mix between the realistic details and then the, some kind of transition that jumps into uh, the other world. What makes Miracle Polish stand out for you? Well, I, I, one of the things that uh, these stories often do is that you, you see kinds of uh, stuff going all, all the way back to the tale, tried and true uh, magical imagery. For instance, um, the mirror. I, I mean, how many how many zillions of stories have there been that play around with all the imagery that comes out of a mirror, hmm. the the other, the reflection, the kind of the doppelganger. I mean, you could just go on talking about all the stuff that just that image of the mirror does. And so, when a writer does that, the, the writer is kind of tapping into. Um, if I, I'm allowed a kind of a pop psychology thing that what uh, Jung called it, archetypes. But what I love about this particular story is that there's a downside to when you do that as well because it kind of can seem like the image has also been used. And what I love about this story is that Milhauser takes all the power of that mirror imagery and then he makes it fresh again. Mm-hmm. He does something with that image that I've never seen anybody else do. Yeah, it's more subtle maybe than most mirror stories. Exactly, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Stuart Dybeck reading Miracle Polish by Stephen Milhauser. Miracle Polish I should have said no to the stranger at the door with his skinny throat and his black sample case that pulled him a little to the side so that one of his jacket cuffs was higher than the other. A polite no would have done the trick. No thanks, I'm afraid not, not today. Then the closing the door and the heavy click of the latch. But I'd seen the lines of dirt on the black shoe creases, the worn down heels, the shine on the jacket sleeves, the glint of desperation in his eyes. 
All the more reason, I said to myself, to send him on his way, as I stepped aside and watched him move into my living room. He looked quickly around before setting his case down on the small table next to the couch. I'd made up my mind to buy something from him, anything, a hairbrush, the Brooklyn Bridge, buy it and get him out of there. I had better things to do with my time. But there was no hurrying him as he slowly undid each clasp with his bony fingers and explained in a mournful voice that this was my lucky day. In the suddenly opened case, I saw six rows of identical dark brown glass bottles, each a bit smaller than a bottle of cough medicine. Two things struck me. The case must have been very heavy, and he must not have sold anything in a long time. The product was called Miracle Polish. It cleaned mirrors with one easy flick of the wrist. He seemed surprised, even suspicious, when I said I'd take one, as if he had wandered the earth for years with the same case filled to bursting with unsold bottles. I tried not to imagine what would drive a man to go from house to house in a neighborhood like this one, with porches and old maples and kids playing basketball in driveways, a neighborhood where Girl Scouts sold you cookies and the woman across the street asked you to contribute to the leukemia drive, but no strangers with broken-down shoes and desperate eyes came tramping from door to door, lugging heavy cases full of brown bottles called Miracle Polish. The name exasperated me. A child could have done better than that, though there was something to be said for the way it sat there, flaunting its fraudulence. Don't trust me, it shouted for all to hear. Don't be a fool. When he tried to sell me a second bottle, he understood from my look that it was time to go. You've made a wise choice, he said solemnly, glancing at me and looking abruptly away. Then he clicked his case shut and hurried out the door as if afraid I'd changed my mind, lifting a slat of half-closed blinds. I watched him make his way across the front walk with the sample case pulling him to one side. At the sidewalk, he stopped, put down his case next to the sugar maple, wiped his jacket sleeve across his forehead and gazed up the block as if he were the new boy in school, getting ready to cross the schoolyard where faces were already turning to stare at him. For a moment he looked back at my house. When he saw me watching him, he grinned suddenly, then frowned and jerked his head away. With a sharp snap, I let the blind slat drop. I had no interest in mirror polish. I placed the bottle in a drawer of the hutch where I kept extra flashlight batteries, packages of light bulbs, and an unused photograph album and gave no more thought to it. Early one morning, a week or so later, I stepped over to the oval mirror in the upstairs hall, as I did every morning before leaving for work. As I tugged down the sides of my suit jacket and smoothed my tie, I noticed a small smudge on the glass near my left shoulder. It had probably been there for years, ever since I'd brought the mirror down from my parents' attic along with a faded armchair and my grandmother's couch with the threadbare arms. I tried to recall whether I had ever cleaned the oval mirror before, whether I had ever bothered to dust the old mahogany frame carved with leaves and flowers. I understood that I was having these thoughts only because of the stranger with the bony fingers and the worn-down heels, and as I went down to the hutch I felt a burst of irritation as I heard him say, This is your lucky day. Upstairs, I pulled a tissue from the box in the bathroom and unscrewed the top of the brown bottle. On the dark glass in white capital letters stood the words, Miracle Polish. The liquid was thick, slow, and greenish-white. I applied a bit of the tissue and wiped the smudge. When I lifted my hand, I was almost disappointed to see that the spot was gone. I was aware of another thing. The rest of the mirror looked dull or tarnished. Had I really never noticed it before? With another dab of polish, I set to work wiping the entire surface, right up to the curves of the frame. It was done quickly. I stepped back for a look. And the light from the overhead bulb with its old glass shade, mixed with sunlight from the window on the nearby landing, I saw myself reflected clearly 
but it was more than that. There was a freshness to my image, a kind of mild glow that I had never seen before. I looked at myself with interest. This in itself was striking, for I wasn't the kind of man who looked at himself in mirrors. I was the kind of man who spent as little time as possible in front of mirrors, the kind of man who had a brisk and practical relation to his reflection with its tired eyes, its disappointed shoulders, its look of defeat. Now I was standing before a man who resembled my old reflection almost exactly, but who had been changed in some manner, the way a lawn under a cloudy sky changes when the sun comes out. What I saw was a man who had something to look forward to, a man who expected things of life. That afternoon when I returned from work, I went up to the oval mirror. In the polished glass, I was struck again by a sense of freshness. Had the mirror really been so deeply in need of cleaning? There were three other mirrors in the house, the mirror over the sink in the upstairs bathroom, the mirror over the sink in the downstairs half-bath, and the small circular mirror with a wooden handle that hung on a hook beside the upstairs bathroom window. None of them had seemed to need cleaning before, but when I was through with them I saw my new reflection glowing back at me from all three. I looked at the brown bottle of miracle polish in my hand. It seemed an ordinary bottle, a bottle like any other. If the polish had made me look younger, if it had made me handsome, if it had smoothed my skin and fixed my teeth and changed the shape of my nose, I'd have known it was some horrible mechanical trick, and I'd have smashed those mirrors with my fists rather than allow myself to be taken in like a fool. But the image in the mirror was unmistakably me. Not young, not good-looking, not anything in particular. A little slumped, heavy at the waist, pouchy under the eyes, not the sort of man that anyone would ever choose to be. And yet he looked back at me in a way I hadn't seen for a long time, a way that made the other things all right. He looked back at me, the thoughts sprang to mind, like a man who believed in things. The next morning, I woke before my alarm and hurried over to the oval mirror in the hall. My image glowed back at me. Even my rumpled pajamas had a certain jaunty look. In the polished glass, the dull walls seemed brighter. The bedroom door, richer brown. The bathroom mirror I shone forth. The whiteness of the sink burned in the glass. The towels looked fuller. Downstairs, the reflected window and the half-bath showed part of a brilliant curtain beyond which lay the green grass of childhood summers. All day at work I thought of nothing but those shining surfaces, like coins catching the sun. When I came home I went from mirror to mirror, striking poses, turning my head from side to side. Because I prided myself on ever having false hopes, on ever permitting myself to imagine that things weren't better than they were, I asked myself whether I might be allowing the mirrors to deceive me. Maybe the greenish-white polish contained a chemical that upon contact with glass produced an optical distortion. Maybe the words, miracle polish, had caused cells in my brain to fire in a series of associations that affected the way I saw the reflected world. Whatever was happening, I knew that I needed another opinion, from someone I could trust. It was Monica who had set me straight. Monica who would know. Monica who looked at the world through large, kind, skeptical eyes, darkened by many disappointments. Monica arrived as she did twice a week after work, once on Tuesdays and once with her overnight bag on Fridays, and as always when I greeted her, I was careful not to look too closely at her, for Monica was likely to draw back and say, Is something wrong? while raising her hand anxiously to her hair. She had a habit of assessing her looks mercilessly. She approved of her eyes, liked the shape of her wrists and the length of her fingers, put up with her calves, but was unforgiving about her thighs, her chin, her biggish knees, her hips, her upper arms. 
She fretted over any imperfection in her skin, like a mosquito bite or a heat rash or a tiny pimple, and often wore a hidden band-aid on a shoulder or a calf, holding some ointment in place. She wore long skirts that came down to her ankles, with plain blouses over plain white bras. She liked to mix dark greens, dark browns, and dark grays. Her shoulder-length brown hair was usually straight and parted in the middle, though sometimes she pulled it back and gathered it in a big dark clip that looked like an enormous insect. She inspected herself in front of any mirror, searching for flaws like a teenage girl before a big party. In fact, she was 40 and worked as an administrative assistant at the local high school. For years, we had edged toward each other without moving all the way. I liked how she hesitated a little before easing into a smile, like the slight heaviness of her body, its faint awkwardness, its air of mild tiredness. liked how when she took off her shoes and placed her feet on the hassock, she would wiggle her toes slowly and say, crinkling her eyes, that feels really, really good. Sometimes in a certain light, when she held her body a certain way, I would see her as a woman for whom things had not worked out as she had hoped, a woman sinking slowly into defeat. Then a burst of fellow feeling would come over me, for I knew how difficult it was waiting for something better, waiting for something that was never going to happen. I took her upstairs to the oval mirror and switched on the light. Look at that, I said, and swept out my arm in a stagey way. It was a gesture meant to imply that what I had to show her was nothing much, really, nothing to be taken seriously. I had hoped the reflection in the polished mirror would please her in some way, but I hadn't expected what I saw, for there she was, without a touch of weariness, a fresh Monica, a vibrant Monica, a Monica with a glow of pleasure in her face. She was dressed in clothes that no longer seemed a little drab, a little elderly, but were handsomely understated, seductively restrained. Not for a moment did the mirror make her look young or beautiful, for she was not young and she was not beautiful. But it was as if some inner constriction had dissolved, some sense of her drifting gradually into unhappiness. In the mirror she gave forth a fine resilience. Monica saw it. I saw her see it. And she began turning her body from side to side, smoothing down her long skirt over her hips, pulling her shoulders back, arranging her hair. Now in the mornings, I rose with a kind of zest and went directly to the hall mirror where even my tumbled hair gave me a look of casual confidence, and the shadowy folds under my eyes spoke of someone in the habit of, of facing and overcoming obstacles. In my cubicle I worked with a concentration and with an odd lightness of heart, and when I returned home in the late afternoon I looked at myself in all four mirrors. It struck me that before I could reach the oval mirror in the upstairs hall, I had to pass through the front hall, cross the dusky living room with its sagging couch, walk the length of the kitchen, and climb two sets of creaking stairs, the long one up to the landing and the short one up to the hall. One night after dinner, I drove to the outskirts of town where the old shopping center faced off against a new mall in a battle of slashed prices. In the aisle, after blenders and juicers, I came to them. I saw tall, narrow mirrors, square mirrors framed in oak and dark walnut, round mirrors like gigantic eyeglass lenses, shovel mirrors, mirrors framed in coppered bronze, mirrors with rows of hooks along the bottom. Avoiding my reflection as well as I could, for these mirrors showed only a tired man with a look of sorrow in his eyes. I chose a rectangular mirror with a cherry wood frame. At home, I opened a drawer of the hutch and took out the brown bottle. With a few careful swipes of a cloth, I polished the mirror. I hung it in the front hall across from the closet 
and next to the boot tray with its old slippers and gardening shoes and stepped back. In the light of the ceiling bulb, I saw my reflection, standing with a cloth over his shoulder and looking out at me, as if ready to hurl himself into whatever the day might bring. The sight of him, standing there with his sleeves pushed up and his cloth over his shoulder and his look of readiness, all this made me smile. And the smile that came back to me seemed to stream out of the glass and into my arms, my chest, my face, my blood. The next day after work, I stopped at a furniture store and bought another mirror. At home, I polished it and hung it in the kitchen, facing the table. As I ate my dinner, I was able to look up whenever I liked and see the oak table, the gleaming plate with its chicken leg and baked potato, the glowing silverware, my reflection looking up alertly, like someone whose attention had been called to an important matter. On Friday, Monica entered the front hall and stopped sharply when she saw the mirror. She glanced at me and seemed about to say something, then turned her face away. In front of the mirror, she stared at herself thoughtfully for a long while. Without turning back to me, she said she supposed it wouldn't be such a bad idea to be able to check her hair and blouse before entering the living room, especially when it was pouring down rain or when the wind was blowing. I said nothing as I watched her reflection push her hair boldly from her cheek. Together she and Monica moved toward the edge of the mirror and disappeared into the living room. In the kitchen I saw Monica's lips pull into a little tight circle. It was an expression I'd never cared for, with its combination of petulance and stubborn severity. But in the new mirror I saw only a flirtatious pout. It's just an experiment, I said, if you really don't like it. But it's your house, she said. But that isn't the point, I said. She threw me a look and lowered her eyes. It was a way she had of protesting silently. She sat with her back to the mirror as I brewed her a pot of herb tea. Seated across from her, I was able to look beyond her strained face to the back of her head, the back of her blouse collar showing through her hair, the top of her shoulder blades. They all seemed to be enjoying themselves as she talked to me about her troubles with the lawn man. Once, when she turned to look out the window, I saw in the mirror the curved line of her forehead, the upward slant of the bottom of her nose, the little slope between her nostrils and her upper lip, and I was struck by the fine liveliness of her profile. I let a day pass, but the next day I bought a large, dark-framed mirror for the living room and hung it across from the couch. I took out my brown bottle and polished the mirror well. When I stepped back, I admired the new room that sprang into view in the polished depths Monica would, of course, push her lips together, but she would come to see it was all for the best. The mirrors of my house filled me with such a sense of gladness that a room without one struck me as a dark cell. I brought home a full-length mirror for the TV room, a rectangular mirror with a simple frame for the upstairs bedroom, an identical one for the guest room down the hall. At a yard sale, I bought an old shield-shaped mirror that I hung in the cellar behind the washer and dryer. One evening when I entered the kitchen, a restlessness seized me, and when I returned from the mall, I hung a second mirror in the kitchen between the two windows. Monica said nothing. I could feel her opposition hardening in her like a muscle. I wasn't unaware that I was behaving oddly like the man in a grip of an obsession. At the same time, what I was doing felt entirely natural and necessary. Some people added windows to brighten their homes. I bought mirrors. Was it such a bad thing? I kept seeing them at yard sales, 
leaning against rickety tables piled with pink dishes, or hanging in hallways and bedrooms at estate sales at the fancy end of town. I added a second one to the living room, a third to the upstairs bath. In the front hall, on the back of the front door, I hung a mirror framed in a dark wood that matched the color of the umbrella stand. When I passed by my mirrors, when I caught even a glimpse of myself as I walked into a room, I felt a surge of well-being. What was the harm? Now and then Monica tried to be playful about it all. What? she would say. Only one mirror on the landing? And her expression would change as she saw me sinking into thought. Once she said, You know, sometimes I think you like me better there. She pointed to a mirror. Then here, she pointed to herself. She said it teasingly with a little laugh, but in her look was an anxious question. As if to prove her wrong, I turned my full attention to her. Before me, I saw a woman with a worried forehead and unhappy eyes. I imagined her gazing out at me from all the mirrors of my house with eyes serene and full of hope. And an impatience came over me as I looked at her dark brown sweater, at the hand nervously smoothing her dark green skirt, at the lines of tension in her mouth. In order to demonstrate to Monica that all was well between us, that nothing had changed, that I was no slave to mirrors, I proposed the Saturday picnic. We packed a lunch in a basket and took a long drive out to the lake. Monica had put on a big brimmed straw hat I had never seen before and a new light green blouse with a little shimmer in it. In the car, she took off her hat and placed it on her lap as she sat back with half-closed eyes and let the sunlight ripple over her face. A tiny green jewel sparkled on her earlobe. At the picnic grounds, we sat at one of the sunny and shady tables, scattered under the high pines that grew at the edge of a small beach. It was a hot, drowsy day. The smoke of grills rose into the branches. A man stood with one foot on his picnic table bench, an arm resting on his thigh as he held a can of beer and stared out at the beach and the water. Kids ran among the tables. On the beach, three boys in knee-length bathing trunks were playing catch with enormous baseball gloves and a lime-green tennis ball. A plump mother and her gaunt teenage son were hitting a volleyball back and forth. Young women in bikinis and men with white hair on their chests strolled on the sand in the water, a few people were splashing and laughing. A black dog with tall ears was swimming towards shore with a wet stick in its mouth. Farther out, you could see canoes moving and oars lifting with sun flashes of spray. And when I turned to Monica, I saw the whole afternoon flowing into her face and eyes. After the picnic, we walked along a trail that led partway around the lake. Here and there on narrow strips of sand at the lake edge, people lay on their backs on towels in the sun. We made our way down to the shore through prickly bushes. On the sand, Monica pulled off her sandals. Lifting up her long skirt, she stepped into the water and threw back her head to take in the sun with closed eyes. At that moment, it seemed to me that everything was possible for Monica and me, Going up to her, I said, I've never seen you like this. With her eyes still closed, she said, I'm not myself today. She began to laugh. Then I began to laugh because of what we had both said and because of her laughter and the sun and the sky and the lake. On the ride home, she fell asleep with her head against my shoulder. The long outing had tired me too, though not in the same way. In the course of the afternoon, an uneasiness had begun to creep into me. The glare of the sun on the water hurt my eyes. The heat pressed down on me. There was a slowness in things, a sluggishness. Monica seemed to walk with more effort, as if the air were a hot heaviness she was pushing her way through. The two of us, she in her straw hat and I in my cargo shorts, 
seemed to me like actors playing the part of ordinary people, enjoying a day at the lake. In fact, I was a man weighed down with disappointment, a man for whom things had not worked out the way he had once imagined, a quiet man, cautious in his life, timid when you came right down to it, though content enough to drift along through the little rituals of his day. Monica? I glanced over at her. The back of her hand lay on her leg. The four fingers were leaning to one side, the thumb hung in front of them. And something about those fingers and that thumb seemed to me the shape of despair. But when I opened my front door and stepped into the hall behind Monica, then the good feeling returned. In the mirror we stood there, she in her shimmering green blouse, and I with a glow of sunburn on my face, deep in the shine of the polished glass, her hand rose in a graceful arc to remove her straw hat. In the living room, I snatched glimpses of her in both mirrors as she walked buoyantly toward the kitchen. In the sunny kitchen, her cheerful reflection picked up a pitcher of water that caught the light. I looked at the second mirror where she began to raise a glass of shining water, pause suddenly, and open her mouth in a lusty yawn. I'd like to lie down, Monica said. I turned my head and saw her tight lips and tired eyelids. I followed her as she made her way slowly up the stairs and past the new mirror on the landing. For a moment her hair glowed at me from the glass. At the top of the stairs she walked sternly and without a glance past the oval mirror and into the bedroom where I watched her bright reflection lie down on the bed and close her eyes. I too was tired, I was more than tired, but the sheer pleasure of being home filled me with a restless energy that drove me to stride through all the rooms of the house. From time to time I stopped before a polished mirror to turn my head this way and that. It was as if my house, with its many mirrors, drew all the old heaviness and weariness from my body, and in a sudden burst of inspiration I took out the bottle of miracle polish, which was still two-thirds full, and went down to the cellar where I applied it to a new mirror that had been leaning against the side of the washing machine, waiting for me to decide where to hang it. Later that evening, as we sat in the living room, Monica still seemed tired and a little moody. I had led her to the couch and tried to position her so that she could see her good-humored reflection, but she refused to look at herself. I could feel resistance coming out of her like the push of a hand. In the mirror I admired a shoulder of her blouse. Then I glanced over at the other Monica, the one sitting stiffly and very quietly on the couch. I had a sense of a sky darkening before a storm. Can't, I thought I heard her say, so softly that I wondered if she had spoken at all, or perhaps she had said can. What did you, I breathed out, barely able to hear my own words? I can't, she said, and now there was no mistaking it. Such a perfect day, and now this? She raised her arm in a weary, sweeping motion that seemed to include the entire room the entire universe. In the mirror, her reflection playfully swept out her arm. I can't. I tried, but I can't. I can't. You'll have to... You'll have to choose. Choose? Her answer was so hushed, it seemed barely more than an exhalation of air. Between me and her. You mean... Her? I hate her, she whispered, and burst into tears. She immediately stopped, took a deep breath, and burst into tears again. You don't look at me, she said. But that's not, I said. I have to go, she said, and stood up. 
She was no longer crying. She took another deep breath and rubbed her nostrils with the back of a bent finger. She reached into a pocket of her skirt and pulled out a tissue that crumbled into fuzz. Here, I said, holding out my handkerchief. She hesitated, took it from me, and dabbed at her nostrils. She handed back the handkerchief. She looked at me and turned to leave. Don't, I said. Me or her, she whispered, and was out the door. During the next week, I flung myself into my work, which was just complicated enough to require my full attention without interesting me in the least. At five o'clock, I came directly home where I felt soothed in every room. But I was no child, no naive self-deceiver, intent on evading a predicament. I wanted to understand things. I wanted to make up my mind. From the beginning, there had been a deep kinship between Monica and me. She was wary, trained to expect little of life, grateful for small pleasures, on her guard against promises, accustomed to making the best of things, in the habit of both wanting and not daring to want something more. Now Miracle Polish had come along, with its air of swagger and its taunting little whisper. Why not, it seemed to say. Why on earth not? But the mirrors that strengthened me, that filled me with a new life, made Monica bristle. Did she feel that I preferred a false version of her, a glittering version to the flesh and blood Monica with her band-aids and big knees and her burden of sorrows? What drew me was exactly the opposite. In the shining mirrors I saw the true Monica, the hidden Monica, the Monica buried beneath years of discouragement. Far from escaping into a world of polished illusions, I was able to see in the depths of those mirrors the world no longer darkened by diminishing hopes and fading dreams. There all was clear, all was possible. Monica, I understood perfectly, would never see these things as I did. When she looked in the mirror, she saw only a place that kept pulling me away from her. And in that place, a rival of whom she was desperately jealous. I felt myself moving slowly in the direction of a dangerous decision I did not wish to make, like someone swerving on an icy road toward an embankment. It wasn't until another week had passed that I knew what I was going to do. Summer was in its fullness on the front porches. Neighbors fanned themselves with folded newspapers. Sprinklers sent arcs of spray onto patches of lawn and strips of driveway, which shone in the sun like black licorice. At the top of a ladder, a man in a baseball cap moved the paintbrush lazily back and forth. It was Saturday afternoon. I had called Monica that morning and told her I had something important to show her. She was to meet me on the front porch. We sat there drinking lemonade like an old married couple, watching the kids passing on bicycles, a squirrel scampering along a telephone wire. A robin was pecking furiously at the roadside grass. After a while, I said, let's go inside. She turned to me then as if she were about to ask a question. If that's what you want, she finally said, and turned both hands palm up. When we stepped into the front hall, Monica stopped. She stopped so abruptly that it was as if someone had put a heavy hand on her shoulder. I watched her stare at the place where the mirror had hung. She looked at me and looked again at the wall. Then she turned and looked at the back of the front door. Its dark panels shone dully under the hall light. Monica reached out and touched her fingers to my arm. I took her through every room of the house, stopping before familiar walls. In the living room, a photograph of my parents looked out at us from the wall where one mirror had hung. The other place was bare except for two small holes in the faded wallpaper with its pattern of tall vases filled with pale flowers. In the kitchen, a new poster showed many kinds of tea. In place of the oval mirror in the upstairs hall, there was a framed painting of an old mill beside a brown pond with two ducks. 
New bathroom cabinets with beveled-edged mirrors hung over the upstairs and downstairs sinks. I could see the gratitude rushing into Monica's cheeks. When the tour was over, I led her to the drawer in the hutch and removed the brown bottle. In the kitchen, she watched me pour the thick, greenish-white liquid into the sink. I washed out the empty bottle and dropped it into the garbage pail next to the stove. She turned to me and said, This is the most wonderful gift that you... We're not done yet, I said, with a touch of excitement in my voice, and led her through the kitchen door and down the four wooden steps into the backyard. Against the back of the house, all the mirrors stood, lined up, slanted at different angles. There it was, the oval mirror from the upstairs hall leaning on a cellar window. There they were, the two front hall mirrors, the kitchen mirrors in their wooden frames, the shield-shaped mirror from the cellar, the living room mirrors, the bedroom mirrors, the full-length mirror from the TV room, a pair of guest room mirrors, the upstairs bathroom mirror removed from its cabinet, the mirror from the landing, the downstairs bathroom mirror, the other mirrors that I had bought and polished and stored in closets, ready to be hung. Square mirrors and round mirrors, swivel mirrors on wooden stands, a mirror shaped like a four-leaf clover. In the bright sun, the polished mirrors gleamed like jewels. Here they are, I said, throwing out my hand. I began walking along in front of them, from one end to the other. As I passed from mirror to mirror slanted against the house, I could see different parts of me, my shoes and pants cuffs, my belt and the bottom of my shirt, my sudden whole shape in the tall mirror, my swinging hand. Now and then I caught pieces of Monica's rival standing back on the green, green grass. And now I said, as if I were addressing a crowd, and I paused for dramatic effect, I glanced at Monica, who stood there with a look that was difficult to fathom, a worried look, it seemed to me. And I wanted to assure her that there was nothing to worry about. I was doing it all for her. Everything would soon be fine. I bent over behind a broad mirror at the end of the row and withdrew a hammer. Raising the hammer high, I swung it against the glass. Then I walked back along that row of mirrors, swinging the hammer and sending bright spikes of glass into the summer air. There, I cried and smashed another. See, I shouted. I swung. I smashed. Lines of wetness ran along my face. Bits of mirror clung to my shirt. It was over faster than I thought possible. All along the back of the house, broken mirror glass lay glittering on the grass. Here and there, an empty frame showed triangles of glass still clinging to the wood. I looked at the hammer in my hand. Suddenly I threw it across the yard, hurled it high into the row of spruces at the back. I could hear the hammer falling slowly through the needly branches. There, I said to Monica. I made a sweeping gesture with both hands, the way you do when you're done with something. Then I began walking up and down in front of her. A terrible excitement burned in me. I could feel my blood beating in my neck. I imagined it bursting through the skin in brilliant gushes of red. She's gone. That's what you wanted, isn't it? Isn't it? All gone. Bye-bye. Are you happy now? Are you? I stopped in front of her. Are you? Are you? I've been close. Are you? Are you? Are you? I've been closer still. I've been so close that I couldn't see her anymore. Are you? Are you? Are you? Are you? Are you? Monica did the only thing she could do. She fled. But first she stood there as if she were about to speak. She stared at me with 
the look of a woman who had been struck repeatedly across the face. There was hurt in that look and tiredness and a sort of pain tenderness. And along with it all came a quiet sureness as of someone who had made up her mind. And then she turned and walked away. There is a restlessness so terrible that you can no longer bear to sit still in your own house. You walk from room to room like someone visiting a deserted town. Every day I mourn for my mirrors with their gleam of miracle polish. Where they'd once hung, I saw only patterns in wallpaper, framed paintings, door panels, lines of dust. One day I drove out to the mall and came home with an oval mirror and a plain dark frame, which I hung in the upstairs hall. I used it strictly for checking my suit jacket. Once, when the doorbell rang, I rushed downstairs to the front door, but it was only a boy with a jar collecting money for a new scout troop. I could feel grayness sifting down on me like dust. A bottle of miracle polish. Was it so much to ask? One of these days, the stranger is bound to come again. He'll walk toward my house with his heavy case tugging him down to one side. In my living room, he'll snap open the clasps and show me the brown bottles row on row. Mournfully, he'll tell me that it's my lucky day. In a voice that is calm but decisive and self-assured, I'll tell him that I want every bottle, every last one. When I close my eyes, I can see the look of suspicion on his face along with a touch of slyness, the shadow of contempt, the beginnings of unbearable hope. That was Stuart Dybeck reading Miracle Polish by Stephen Milhauser. The story appeared in The New Yorker in November of 2011 and was included in his collection, Voices in the Night, which was published by Knopf in 2015. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin, too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. Stuart, before the podcast, in an email, you mentioned that you think of Miracle Polish as an, an Aladdin's magic lamp kind of story. What, what did you mean by that? What genie comes out of this lamp? Well, the reason I said that is that, um, as we mentioned a, a little earlier, I teach this class, and I learn from teaching it. It's, it's interesting. I watch kids try to write these stories, college students. And one of the things that became clear to me only after teaching it is that when you're writing a story using uh, an image like, a, like the mirror or the miracle polish, one of the things that's happening is the same thing that you would expect out of a love story. That is, if you put two people together, there has to be some kind of interaction. And if it's, a, say, a vampire, the vampire has to bite you. You have to put a stake in its heart. If it's a rocket ship or a time machine, you have to get in there. And it has to take you somewhere. And so um, one of the things that, that I loved watching Milhauser do in this story is creating the interaction with the polish and with the mirror itself and seeing where it was going to take him. And I, I think the secret of these stories, the Aladdin's Lamp story, the Snow White story, and all the stories we call fairy tales, is that they invariably lead to one great theme, and the theme is transformation. So what do you think is, uh, is transformed here? Ah, <laughs> I, one of the things I like about this story is I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what's transformed. <laughs> but it, it, if you read Milhauser's stories, a lot of them are love stories. So one of the things that strikes me about the story is that it's, it's an absolutely non-romantic, unromantic love story. 
the other theme that Milhauser likes is the, the theme of illusion. And the story is very much about, is there an illusion or is there not an illusion going on here in those mirrors? But a- added to that in this story is there's just that sense of, he mentions it all the time, of, of disappointment in life, of reaching a point in your life where you're beginning to realize that all your hopes and dreams for it are not going to be realized. And um, going back to uh, that comment about a story that seems to have many realistic details, even though there's a magical quality to it. Talking about life in that sense of, I think these characters are in their 40s, where you've reached some point and you're already starting to look at the downhill side of it, figures into uh, that question, what, what's the theme of the story? Mm-hmm. How, how is it transformed? And it seems to me that the transformation in the story is the realization that there will be no transformation. <laughs> or that transformation is, itself is illusory. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think of this as a, as a kind of parable or a, a metaphor for something? Um, any kind of an imagistic story, whether it's finally magical or whether it's even just stays realism, the image always comes to mean something more than itself. It always takes on meaning. For me, this story certainly does does do that. Yeah, I mean, certainly, it, it it's in some ways a story of of addiction. You know that he he starts to need this vision of himself and of Monica so much that he can't live without it. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting to see that that you can draw parallels to a lot of things, but they don't necessarily go all the way. Yeah, that, that was one of the features of it that I really loved, is that it it, it refused to be predictable. <laughs> And um, the character himself talks about obsession and then seems to reject the idea. So one of the things that occurs to you as you're reading the story is that as savvy as he seems to regard himself, as skeptical as he seems to regard himself, as willing to tell the truth about himself as he seems to think he is, one isn't so sure that any of that's very true by the end of the story. What he, what he finally does to, the, to Monica mm-hmm. is horrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's it sort of plays on the on the story of Narcissus also, you know. But what he right. seems to fall in love with is not so much his own reflection, but maybe Monica's reflection. You know, mm-hmm. well, I, one of the things about the um, closure in that story, the way it ends with the mirrors and the on the lawn, is that um, so much of American fiction, even more film, you have a closure. One has a closure of violence some kind of violence action occurs. And at the end of this story, these are two very middle-class, middle-aged people. And yet the, the violence that Milhauser is able to evoke, it's more gestural mm-hmm. than actually physical. But it, it's a kind of a violence that I've, that I've never seen in a, in, a, in a... I can't think of another story that, that manages to evoke violence without you know, yet another gunfight or a fist fight or a car chase, all those kinds of tired out images. But the the psychological violence in the story is profound. Yeah. What do you think he's acting out of at the end? I mean, is it anger? Is it resentment that he's having to give up this vision for Monica? Is it, he describes himself repeatedly as excited. Right. And he's not an excitable guy. No. I think you can have different readings of the story, and I do, but one reading of the story for me is that one of the things that strikes me is that they have this undefined, or maybe it is a defined relationship, and there's, there's absolutely no eroticism in it whatsoever. She comes over with her suitcase every Friday or something, and, but she just, both of them, what they seem to have in common is a willingness for companionship and a feeling that they, that they have things in common to live these kinds of um, watered-down lives. And yet, um, it seems as if he's trying to show her something, maybe even blame her for something at the end, when the mirrors offer some way to make life more full of hope and more vivid, and she rejects it because she feels it's, he's fallen in love with her reflection and not with her. Right. Um, 
I mean, he's, he's clearly trying to hurt her, but he's also trying to show her something that they're giving up. It's, it's interesting, you know, what you say about the violence of the scene, because no one, no one gets physically hurt. No one gets um, physically hurt, no. But at the same time, he's smashing these mirrors, and he's picturing his blood kind of spurting out of his neck, you know, almost as though he sort of feels he's, he's somehow murdering himself. And I suppose if you're smashing a mirror, you are smashing yourself. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of just annihilates his own vision of Monica. He kind of, when he gets in her face, he gets so close he can't see her anymore. You know, he's kind of, he's murdered something in her, too. Right. But interestingly, after she's gone, he's not missing her or mourning her. He's, he's you know, longing for the salesman. <laughs> To mm-hmm. come back, the the salesman who who seems like a an extra from any number of magical stories. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, he could be selling magic lamps. He could be selling. Uh, he's just one of those guys who pops up, and uh, and he he enters this realistic story and brings his little magical object and disappears. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to that opening scene because the very first line is, I should have said no. I should have said no to the stranger at the door. And so he knows this, and yet he lets him in, invites him in, because he sees that his shoes are worn and he's and he looks sort of desperate. Is that out of generosity? Is it out of recognition? Well, I had the same take on it that you did which is that without those worn shoes, that guy isn't getting in the door. Yeah. But the other thing is that um, although the story doesn't make a big deal out of it, it, it seems that the way Milhauser writes it is that his strategy, the strategy of this character, which is hardly surprising, is much the kind of strategy that, say, one might use with a, with a panhandler. That is, I'll, I'll give you a quarter, I'll give you a dollar, and then uh, you have to go. And, and, and at the end of the story, um, he plays with that same idea. The, the next time the fellow comes, it, it won't be about buying one bottle of Miracle Polish, which justifies having him leave. He wants them all. Right, which is funny because it doesn't take that much. <laughs> you know? yeah. It would be hard to you know, use them all. When he looks in the mirror and he sees and and suddenly sees himself not looking defeated or disappointed, but as someone who expects something of life or has something to look forward to, what's really wrong with that? I mean, why do we, why, <laughs> why shouldn't he be allowed to see himself that way? Well, he asks the same question. <laughs> yeah. And he almost manages to, con- to convince me. <laughs> but... I, you know, the, the, the story's full of ironies, one of which is that the way Monica enters the story is that she's coming in there to try to confirm his take on the mirrors, and it turns out that actually she then becomes the, the force in the story that, that seems to make it a moral decision for him, uh, and rather than uh, granting permission and sharing it she creates the the conditions where he can't can't have something that seems like he should be able to have them. What what harm are they doing? He continually asks, and uh, his behavior does seem a little odd. <laughs> but and, and it actually adds a kind of an interesting uh, comic touch to the story. Really, when you uh, there, there's there's a real cinematic quality to some of these scenes. And when you actually kind of take that one little step back that a reader can take and look at this house now full of all these mirrors, it's there. there's a, almost a kind of an oddly comic effect to it. <laughs> Maybe this is just, just his justification, but what he thinks he's seeing when he sees Monica in the mirror is, is the true Monica, you know, the person she was before she was worn down by the, the disappointments of life. She thinks he's seeing, you know, some fantasy version of her that doesn't really exist. Right. Which do you think is right? 
what do I think is right? <laughs> I, I think what's what I think what's right is uh, that Mil, one of the things that seems Milhauser does is um, the character that he brings in as to to witness the effect in the mirror confirms that there is an effect in the mirror. So this is when once Monica arrives in the story, we know that he hasn't totally made this stuff up. She sees something different in the mirror as well. But we never know that she really sees the exact same thing that he sees. And the way he defines what he sees in the mirror, he goes out of his way to make sure that the reader doesn't have some kind of simplistic notion that the people in the mirror now look sexy or like movie stars or anything of the like. The words that he uses over and over again is that they don't look disappointed anymore. They don't look depressed. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's really a pretty high, it's kind of a high wire act for him, for the writer here. And I think he, it's one of the brilliances of the story to actually um, make sure that we're not just getting some kind of a comic book effect of looking in that mirror, but at the same time, creating enough of a sense that there's something special going on. Well, it's interesting that when he when he describes what he first saw in Monica, he makes it quite clear that what drew him to her was her look of disappointment, you know, and the, and the kind of kinship of that. Exactly. But we don't know that she really looks that way. Right. He talks about her in the way he talks about himself and the way he talks about that guy who was selling miracle polish. He seems to notice in people body language and appearances that all lead to the defeat. And we really don't know that Monica has necessarily accepted that or even sees her, herself as defeated. One of the things that r- remains unclear to me about the story, but it's a, a, a indefiniteness that I find attractive about the story, is is whether she ever shares that with him. You know, for instance, is the day in the story that is most like looking in a mirror is the day they go to the beach. Everything is vivid. It's, you know, really pretty much like they're two people in love. And she herself said, we had a wonderful time at the beach. And yet he can't manage to get back from the beach without ruining that day in himself. He looks at her hand, all she does, all she is is sleeping beside her. And the position of her hand on her body looks like defeat. <laughs> and I don't think that if Monica wakes up and looks at her hand, that's what she's thinking. Yeah. This is actually the guy that she is hooked up with and comes over to see every week. And this is his sensibility. So what he presumes Monica sees and what she might actually see are, I think are two different things. We also never, we never know what, how she sees him look in the mirror. You know, if she prefers the, the mirror version of him mm-hmm. or the kind of, you know, bedraggled, defeated version of him in real life. She doesn't seem very interested in the difference between. Yeah, well, that's a great point. I, I, we don't even know that she's, that, you know, the kind of bedraggled way he sees himself and the bedraggled way he sees her. You know, he, I mean, he tells her, us that she doesn't like, she likes her, her fingers, but she doesn't like her knees and so on and so forth. There's nothing all that unusual about that. I mean, who, who doesn't have, take the photograph with this side of my face or <laughs> wait, I'm having a good hair day or a bad day. I mean, it's, it's not per, particularly unusual. Yeah. But um, on the other side of all that, he takes it a step further. It's always about, disappointment and defeat and, and I'm, I'm i'm not exactly sure that 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 step he takes beyond appearance into appearance meaning defeat and disappointment is shared by monica i suppose it's possible to read to, to read the story thinking that to monica these are just normal mirrors and he suddenly put hundreds of them up in his house you know <laughs> She seems to realize that there's something about her in the mirror that he prefers to her. Yeah. And since we're very clearly told that she doesn't turn into some beautiful seductress in the mirror, there must be something that she does see there 
in a woman that she doesn't even refer to as herself. She calls her her. But I, I think it's kind of ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. People have talked about this story as being, you know, like a Twilight Zone episode. Uh-huh. And I was thinking that if it, if it were that, then this character would kind of cross over into the mirror world and maybe have trouble coming back or something. But Milhauser doesn't push it to that point. He, do, he doesn't push it completely into unreality. He keeps nope. it somehow in the slightly plausible <laughs> zone. Yep. Yeah, it just right. It rides that edge. Yeah. It, it, it's that. It's that very lack of him uh, falling prey to the temptation to take that step that makes me admire this story. It, it seems. It seems what he does with it is way more original than finally to do what a lot of stories do, which is uh, the the character loses himself in the, in his own reflection or. Yeah. I, I just don't know another story that quite goes in the direction that this one does. That's a, a fairy tale without the, the happy ending. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Stuart. Thanks, Deborah. Stephen Milhauser is the author of 13 books of fiction, including the novel Martin Dressler, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1997, and the story collections Dangerous Laughter, We Others, and Voices in the Night, which was published in 2015. Stuart Dybeck is a poet and fiction writer whose story collections include Paper Lantern Love Stories and Ecstatic Cahoots 50 Short Stories. He was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2007. You can download more than 130 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Kate Walbert reads Stuart Dybeck's story Pet Milk, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>